two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you once again, Rebecca, and welcome to the next episode of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. Now, a while back, we did a loosely connected series on crime-related movies, and there was one I completely forgot about, which we're going to get to right now. Crime movies in general, and movies about thieves in particular, are like most other genres in the Western world dominated by men. But today we're going to look at a couple of movies involving female thieves from the year 2000, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, directed by Ang Lee, and from the year 2018, Widows, directed by Steve McQueen. Yes, the director Steve McQueen, not the actor Steve McQueen. And while both of these are very different movies, what they have in common, aside from the fact, of course, that they both center on female thieves, is both both of them are based on novels, novels that are part of a series. And both of them are made by filmmakers who, up to the time they made these films, were better known for making, for lack of a better term, art house movie. This was their attempt to do a genre movie while still keeping their own style that they had used in art house movies. And I, for one, think both movies turned out terrific that way. And we'll get into that. But first, Claude is going to give us the plot description for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, well, it's kind of tough to lock the date down, but I'm placing this film somewhere during the 18th hundreds. Uh, Chow Yun-Fat is Master Lee Mu-Bai. He is an accomplished swordsman and martial artist, and he has a 400-year-old sword called the Green Destiny, which is renowned for its grace and its superiority in fights. However, Mu-Bai wants to leave the ways of the warrior behind him. Uh, for him, the sword is holding too many memories of the past, and he wants to retire in peace. So, he asks his friend, uh, Yu Shulian, who is played by Michelle Yeoh, to take the sword and present it as a gift to their friend, Sir Tay who is played by Si Hung Lung. Shulian is a skilled warrior herself, just like Mu Bai, and she has feelings for him, which he does reciprocate, but neither of them are acting on it because Shulian was widowed by Mu Bai's best friend and... They, you know, want to keep up appearances and that kind of thing. Anyway, at his estate, Serte accepts the uh, gift and he ex- places it in a decorative case. Uh, Shulian also meets Jen, who is played by Zi Zhang, the daughter of a Manchurian governor, and she is set for an arranged marriage. Jen is curious about Shulian and she seems envious of her status as a free warrior. That night, a thief dressed in black sneaks into Serte's house and he steals the green destiny. The alarm goes out and the thief is chased over rooftops, pursued by Shulian, both of them demonstrating tremendous skill in the Wudang technique. The two engage in hand-to-hand combat, but the thief manages to escape. Now, Shulian has her suspicions about who the thief might have been, and she tells Mubai about the theft when he arrives at Serte's estate. While Shulian is surprised at Mubai's arrival, she's happy to have his help. With the help of 
Beau, that's uh, Certe's servant, played by Jean Gao, Mubai and Shulian investigate the theft and discover that it originated within Governor Yu's compound and that the infamous bandit Jade Fox, who's played here by Pei Pei Cheng, is hiding out there. Mubai knows Fox well. She was the lover of his master who sought to learn Wudang from him, but when he refused to teach her because she was a woman, she killed him and left. Mubai has spent his life tracking down Jade Fox, and this is the closest he's gotten to her. Bo meets an undercover policeman and his daughter who have been tracking Jade Fox, and he explains that his wife was murdered by Fox, who we discover now is hiding in plain sight as Jen, uh, Jen's governess. <clears throat> While the three of them are conversing during the day, May and her father are sharpening their weapons, a dart is shot into their quarters with a message attached to it. Jade Fox challenges them to a showdown that night. Uh, they hide in the meeting place until they see an old woman woman crossing the courtyard. Well, they're no fools. They know this is Jade Fox, and they call her out. The four of them fight, but they're often thwarted by Bo, who is not a skilled fighter. Uh, the inspector and his daughter seem on the verge of defeat when Mubai arrives and he engages Jade Fox. His attack is diverted, however, by the thief in black. Fox addresses her as her apprentice, confident now that the battle is won. But Mubai engages the thief alone, while the others fight Fox three to one. The thief fights Mubai with Green Destiny, his own sword. It turns out he's quite impressed with her skills, although they're a little bit rough. The police inspector, meanwhile, is killed by the fox. The next day, Jen is told by Shulian that a fight occurred the night before with Jade Fox and that an undercover policeman was killed. This is when we realize that she is the thief in black who stole the Green Destiny. She decides to return the sword that night out of a feeling of guilt, but she's intercepted by Mubai, who offers to become her teacher in Wudang. Jen rejects his offer and she leaves. Back at the governor's compound, Jen confronts Fox about killing the policeman and banishes her from her quarters. Shortly thereafter, we see someone scaling the rooftops and avoiding the guards. He sneaks into Jen's quarters and we discover that they know each other. His name is Lo. He's played by Chang Chen and he asks Jen to come away with him to the desert. This starts a long flashback showing their backstory. While crossing the desert in a caravan, Jen sits in a wagon watching the landscape go by beside her mother. She's holding a jade hair comb in her hand and suddenly the caravan is attacked by a group of bandits. Jen's mother faints and a young man on a horse who turns out to be Lo appears and snatches the comb out of Jen's hand. Jen gets out of the coach and begins to fight the bandits. Lo leads her on horseback into the desert, baiting her with the comb. They stop for water, but Jen continues to fight until she knocks Lo out and collapses herself from the heat. When she wakes up, she finds herself in a cave where Lo apparently hides out. He allows her to bathe herself and tells her he was going to sing so she'll always know where he is. As he's cooking outside, Jen hits him over the head with a rock before escaping on horseback. But the desert is huge and she really doesn't know what she's doing. Before long, the horse dies and Jen continues on foot until she collapses again. She wakes up sometime later. This time she's tied up and she's back in the cave. Lo had tracked her down and he tied her up so she wouldn't hit him again. Some time passes and they fall in love and Lo takes her to a settlement in the mountains. They notice in the distance that Jen's family is looking for her and Lo convinces her to return to them, saying he would do the same for a missing daughter. He tells her the story of a man who climbed to the top of a mountain where it was rumored that if you made a wish and then jumped off the mountain, your wish would come true. He wished for his sick family to be well again and jumped off. His wish came true and, because his heart was pure, he didn't die. Jen and Lo share an intimate moment before she leaves, but she leaves him her comb. 
All right, back in the present, Jen refuses to leave with Lo out of a sense of duty. Lo is angry and heartbroken, and he gives her back her comb before leaving. It's clear she's upset as well. The next day, just after the wedding ceremony, Lo interrupts the wedding convoy. He starts shouting at her, begging her to go back to the desert with him. He escapes the guards, but he's found by Mubai and Shulian. Mubai thinks at first that Lo is with the Jade Fox, but Shulian sees he, that he's innocent, and she takes him with them somewhere else. Lo tells them that Jen belongs to him, and Shulian responds that, well, getting yourself killed is a bad way to show your love. He has to wait and they'll see what they can do. And Lo reluctantly agrees. Later on, the Green Destiny goes missing again, along with Jen, who has apparently run away. She's seen traveling on the road dressed as a male. When she grabs the wrist of a waitress, demanding that her cup be cleaned, she draws the attention of a couple of local tough guys who boast about their strength and their fighting abilities. Jen displays a quick and harmless display of her skills with the Green Destiny, but that just incites them to ask if she knows Lee Mubai. They recognize the sword. She replies that he is her defeated foe. Well, word spreads around the inn of Jen's shady character, and many of the patrons think it would be best if she left or they'll fight her. Jen is angry, and she unleashes her fury with everyone in the inn, leaving most of it and most of them in a shambles. Mubai and Shulian arrive soon after, and they learn about the fight. Shulian takes residence at a nearby Wudang temple, only to be joined soon after by Jen. They talk, but the discussion quickly escalates into a fight, which ends when Jen wounds Shulian, and Mubai appears, yelling that Jen has no right to wield the green destiny. Jen escapes the temple into a bamboo forest, followed by Mubai. After a brief but amazing-looking chase, they stop at the edge of a small waterfall, where Mubai expresses his wish to train her again, sensing that she's confused and stubborn. She agrees to train with him only if he can take the green destiny from her in less than three moves. Mubai does so with one move, and Jen yells out her in frustration. Mubai does not believe she needs the green destiny, and he throws it over the falls. Jen leaps in and dives after the sword. Before Mubai can react, the Jade Fox swoops in and carries Jen's unconscious body away. She takes Jen to her hideout in the hills and tells her to rest and secretly places strong smoking herbs in a jar before leaving, which basically drugs Jen. She awakens some time later, dazed, and she stumbles over to a portion of the cave where rainwater is falling in and collecting. She drinks some of the water before noticing Mubai entering the cave. He has managed to track them down. Jen stumbles into his arms and he takes her back to her bed and then knocks the smoking herb jar into a puddle. He revives her and asks where Jade Fox is. Suddenly, Fox appears, screaming, and she shoots a whole bunch of poisonous darts at them. Mubai manages to deflect them with his sword. He engages Fox sword to sword and eventually destroys her blade, sending the pieces through her body, mortally wounding her. In her dying breath, she calls Jen a deceitful whore and tells Mubai that he will die just like his master. And that's when we discover that one of the darts has found its way into his neck. Jade Fox dies just as Shu Lien arrives. Jen says that she knows the antidote to the poison, but it will take some time to prepare. So she leaves to get the ingredients, and Shu Lien stays with Mubai as he meditates to slow the effects of the poison. However, before Jen can return, Mubai succumbs in Shulian's arms, finally confessing his love for her. Jen arrives back at the cave with the antidote, but discovers she's too late. She kneels before a vengeful Shulian, who relents and tells her, Go meet with Lo, he's waiting for you in the mountains. Jen goes, and she's reunited with Lo, but she's unhappy. She finds He finds her gone one morning, and discovers her looking out over the side of the mountain. She asks him if he remembers the story of the man on the mountain that he told her about long ago, and she tells him to make a wish. He wishes for them to return to the desert 
and Jen jumps off, gracefully falling through the mist. Okay, so let's talk about Ang Lee. He was born in Taiwan, went to school in Taiwan, but then came to study at the Lawrence Tisch School at NYU, and among his classmates was Spike Lee, and they worked on Spike's uh, student film there, and then... Lee eventually went on to become a director of his own. His first three movies were all in Mandarin, although two of them take place in New York City, Pushing Hands and The Wedding Banquet, while only the third one, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, takes place entirely in Taiwan. All three of them, by the way, star Si Hung Lung, as the father figures are all centered on families. Pushing Hands is about Lung's character living with his son, who's married to an American woman who has a not great relationship with him. The Wedding Banquet, uh, he plays the father of a man living in New York City who, unbeknownst to him or his wife, is gay and decides to marry another Hong Kong woman, who, or another Taiwanese woman, I should say, who is living in New York City and whose green card is expiring. And further complications ensue. And then finally, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, he plays a restaurant chef, and the movie is about his relationship with his three daughters. So all of Lee's movies up to this point were about family, and that was true of his first three completely English-language movies instead as well. Sense and Sensibility, the adaptation of the Jane Austen novel, which I'm going to come back to in a moment. Uh, the Ice Storm, which is about a nuclear family which is not as perfect as advertised, and it's about their ordeal during Thanksgiving weekend in 1973. And Ride With the Devil, which is set against the Kansas-Missouri uh, border war during the Civil War. And although that wasn't about a family in the same way the other five words, it's about a makeshift family of sorts. So family is an important theme in Lee's work. So now that we've established that, the other element that went into Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is the fact that Lee was growing up a fan of, among other types of films, of course, wuxia film, which are similar to the Shambara films of Japan. They're martial arts, sword fight movies set in the past. And, you know, there are all kinds of themes of honor and things like that running through them. And Lee wanted to find out if he could make a wuxia movie using his own particular style. As a matter of fact, when he was pitching this movie to Michelle Yeo, he told her, uh, think, uh, 
sense and sensibility, but done in a wuxia style. And I'm here to tell you that I believe that he accomplished that completely here. Uh, this obviously was a big artistic and commercial success. I don't know if it's true anymore, but up to that point, it was the highest grossing non-English language movie in this country. It sort of paved the way for all kinds of other martial arts movies and Asian-influenced movies to make it in the U.S. market. And of course, it was nominated for several Oscars and won, among others, Best Foreign Language Film, as it was called at the time, and quite a few technical awards. And it is in my opinion, an amazing movie. And Claude, what did you think of it? It's it's a fabulous movie, really. And and you know what I was thinking is is and you and I we grew up in the New York area as as and and you probably remember Channel Five on Saturday afternoons when they would show all these martial arts movies. And you know, I I got to thinking like this is what these movies would look like if they had a decent budget because. You had these great stories and you had this fantastic action, uh, but it always had like this weird look and feel to it. This thing is just beautifully, beautifully shot. And, and the, the action sequences are just amazing to watch. And I think it especially works because so much of the stunts were done by the actors themselves. There are a couple of places where, you know, they needed uh, stunt actors and that kind of play. And one scene where it's actually a little bit obvious, but for the most part, it, it just, it looks good. It's an engaging story. It's, it's just, it, it's really got something for everybody, believe it or not. Unfortunately, <clears throat> I never watched the martial arts movies on Channel 5. I don't <laughs> think my parents would have let me, but uh, that's another story. But you anyway, do know what I'm talking about, though, right? Vaguely. Yeah. But let's uh, get back to the story, and let's get back to Sense and Sensibility again. Because if you've read the novel or seen the movie that Ang Lee made of it with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet playing the two sisters, Eleanor and Marianne, respectively, you would know that Eleanor represents sense you know, because she's always observing decorum and she's keeping her feelings hidden until near the very end of of the story while Marianne is sensibility. She's willful and impulsive and wears her emotions on her sleeve. You could argue that even though they are not sisters at all, that Shulin uh, and Jen basically are sense and sensibility in this movie as well because Shulin um, observes decorum throughout and except when she's fighting Jen, both when she doesn't know who Jen is and then when she does realize who Jen really is, both those times are the only times in the movie until near the end that we see any emotion coming out of her. Most mm -hmm. of the time, she's keeping that pretty well hidden, whereas Jen, of course, is all impulse and thinks mostly about herself and about what she wants right now. 
you know, even after Cho has taken her to his cave, the first thing that she thinks about when she wakes up is getting back her calm and nothing else because it's hers. Mm -hmm. And he took it from her and she wants it now. And even when she's, you know, observing decorum of her own, because she is, after all, the daughter of royalty, you can always see the emotions churning inside of her. You know, there's just a little bit of an edge to the happiness that she's showing when she's uh, talking to um Lian Shen, or um, when she's observing any Shulian, sorry, or when she's observing any kind of protocol or decorum, you can see that she's just a little too eager at it. So that's one theme I think that Lee masterly develops throughout the movie is the relationship between these two and. The the fact that they represent different parts, which leads also to the fact that arguably, well, I would say inarguably, that another part of the movie is the fact that this is pretty much a battle for Jen Saul, where you've got Li Mubai and Shulian on one side and Jade Fox on the other. And it isn't until the very end that Jen goes over from the dark side to the good side. But in this movie, there is quite a cost to it, unfortunately for her. And yet the movie, Lee and the writers handle that very well. Yeah, I think they do. I think my only real complaint as far as Jen would be, well, it would, would be that I think her identity as as the the thief in black is, is it was kind of telegraphed as like i kind of figured it out before they did the reveal so that that was one thing and i think that was uh, it, it was an unfortunate side effect of the fact that jen had to do this kind of hiding her emotions as she's ha holding these conversations um and and the other thing is that you know jen has you know kind of a unique look compared to some of the others because she is younger than most of the other characters in the film. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and so I kind of picked up pretty quickly when the thief first shows up that, A, this is a female, and B, you know, these are the set, this is the same set of eyes that I'm looking at when I see the thief, that when I see the, the thief masked, and when I saw Jen first appear, and I'm like, ah, I think this here is our thief. But other than that, you know, it, 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 like I said, I, I think just the, the 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 difficulty that she has hiding her emotions was was one of the side effects as as far as that's concerned. True. Although I have to say, when I first saw this was when it came out in theaters in 2000, I did figure out the female the thief was female right away. Uh, I did not pick up until. The second time that she appeared, that she was Jen. So maybe that was, uh, don't know what that says about me, but that's what happened. <laughs> um, we should maybe, mention. Maybe I'm just astute. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Well, we should mention real quick, uh, this was based on a novel. This is actually based on the third of uh, four novels in a series by Wang Du Lu, which I have never read. Have you read any of them? I have not, no. Okay. I don't know if they're available in this uh, country, so I don't know how well it fits into the continuity of the novels. But as I said, I think the storyline stands um, on its own. Now, let's talk about some of those technical aspects. Um, one thing about most of the martial arts or wuxia movies that I've seen, at least the ones that have been made most recently, is they have a lot of slow-mo, slow-motion camera work in them. And this movie eschews all of that. And they also have a lot of cuts. Even the older one that I've seen, including one that also starred Shang Pei-Pei, uh, Come Drink With Me from 1970, I think it was. That Shang Pei-Pei, by the way, was one of the biggest stars of Wuxia film back in the day. Um, including Come Drink With Me and the sequel to that, Golden Swallow, which is actually the name of the character she plays in both movies. And then she and Michelle Yeoh also appear together in another martial arts movie. This one came out in the late 90s called Wing Chun which unfortunately is not available to stream in this country uh, except either in a dubbed version or it's available on YouTube in Cantonese but with no subtitles. Mm. But anyway, a hallmark of those movies, as I mentioned, is there's a lot of slow-mo and slow-motion photography and there's a lot of quick cut. That is not the case with this movie. Uh, Lang and his cinema photographer who is uh, Peter Power, Peter Pow, excuse me, and his editor, Tim Squires. They use a lot of long takes in yeah. this movie. And that's one of the reasons, one other reason why the fight scenes work so well. Another, as you mentioned, is the fact that most of the actors are doing their own fighting. Uh, what they did here is Ang Lee and the stuntman and the the fight director who as we mentioned before uh, when we talked about so close was done was the same person who was the fight director for um, so close and the first matrix movie I believe and um, there's a lot of wire work here that they use and what Lee ended up doing is digitally removing the wires from the photography so that they're pretty much invisible. Maybe a couple instances you can sort of see it, but other than that, it really does look like they're flying through the air and climbing up the walls and things like that. And as I said, in a lot of movies that came out after that, when you'd have someone 
and climb up a wall just to jump and then turn around, you see that in all kinds of slow-mo, not here. And that makes the effect even better, in my opinion. Right. Not only that, but the, the, the shots also get, the, not the shots really, but the moves rather, get a little bit more complicated as you go a little bit further into the film. So at first, you see these people jump and they just jump these incredibly long distances and you say, oh, this is part of the training and, you know, okay, here's what it is. And then later on, you can see them like, you know, scaling walls and just gliding through the air and, and you know, jumping from building to building. And you say, no, this is more of like a flying kind of thing than it is just, you know, long jumping. And similarly, until finally you get to the scene in the bamboo forest. And when I say in the forest, we're not running around on the ground. We're up in the trees and they're going from tree to tree. And and it's yeah. literally a flying kind of thing. And if I'm not mistaken, there's even one scene where one of the characters kind of levitates before they start jumping up a wall or something like that. And, and I say, okay, we got like genuine flying going on here until finally, it really isn't until pretty deep in the movie that one of the characters i think it's mubai actually refers to it as flying you know up until then it's just like wow this is an impressive stunt but it, it's it's literally flying to these guys right and another factor that contributes to the fight scenes is the score by Dun Tan. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, we're going to talk in our next episode as well about a movie that does this. But while there are some inst music instruments that are used there to create you know, some sort of melody and haunting theme, and there was also a song that was written called A Love Before Time, actually co-written by James Shamus, who has been Ang Lee's producing and writing partner through uh, most of his career. Um, and it was translated by Elaine Shao and also featured Yo-Yo Ma uh, playing a cello solo on it. Um, most of the score, at least during the fight scenes, is percussion. And you might not think you'd be able to get emotion out of drums or shaking of uh, shiny of cymbals or other instruments of percussive nature but in this case lee and duke tan do manage to ring emotion about that making the duntans excuse me making the fight scenes even more charged than you would get with the more conventional score yeah you you get that and and i i love when you get things like this where where um, uh the person scoring a film will will take it in a slightly different direction because there are there are tropes in in this sort of thing and and so you expect to hear one kind of music and you get something else and and it really really works well and i think like one of the the best recent examples would be the show game of thrones where we had ramin jawadi who was asked to score the to asked to score the series and the rule number one for that show was there aren't going to be any woodwind because so many of these films and tv shows which are set in medieval times have lots of little flutes and whatever and and the word was, nope, that ain't happening. So we had to depend on different, more more Western classical instruments to, to carry across 
you know, some of the things that, that, that he wanted to, that he wanted to convey. And it works out really, really well. Uh, you know, similarly, we, we get this, which is like very percussion heavy, which makes sense given that there's going to be a lot of blows landed here. And you kind of want to emphasize that a little bit, but it also kind of underlies like this is going to sound like a weird cliche, like the, just the beating heart of the, the, of the story behind the story because everything has layers upon layers upon layers here. Right. Now, speaking of trope, this movie does have a couple that they do play pretty straight. Uh, one of them, of course, is the Green Destiny sword. It's uh, not only the MacGuffin of the movie and <laughs> the fact that it's this thing that everyone is after, it's also used as a symbol. Um, it's a symbol of the struggle that Jen is having between the two sides of herself. And it's also a symbol of the unrequited love between Shaolin Fat and Michelle Yeo here. And although in lesser hands, it would have been a pretty obvious symbol here, Lee and the writers play it pretty well. So it never really hits you over the head as far as that goes. Even the first scene between um, between Lu Mubai and Shulian when he first presents her with the sword and you get the explanation about what it is and what it means, even that is handled in a pretty subtle way. A lot depends not on what Mubai is saying, but the way he and Shulian are looking at each other right. and the obvious feelings that are underneath both of them that they don't dare express just yet. So that's one thing that the movie handles pretty well. And then there's another uh, bit of symbolism that I didn't notice the first time that I saw, but I picked it up uh, like the second or third time. If you'll notice that Jen, when she's observing decorum as a daughter of royalty, or when she's masking up as the bandit, her hair is up, or it's tied, or it's tied behind her in a ponytail. But when she's uh, showing her more rebellious side, she's literally letting her hair down, huh. especially when she goes to chase uh, show after her calm and then also when the two of them uh, become involved you know her hair is pretty much all down during those scenes as well and again something that could have seemed kind of obvious but the fact that Lee doesn't really call attention to it just puts it in there makes it work all the more better all the better see I didn't notice that one maybe I'm not so astute after all <laughs> but I'll, I'll say this, that, that I, I think it's interesting that, you know, you've got uh, Julien and, and um, Li Mubai who are, they, they are of a kind, really. I mean, they, they've got different roles, but they're, they're basically the same type of person. And yet, Julien uh, does like to use that straight bladed sword. And yet, um, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, it was, it was um, Mubai who uses the straight sword, the green destiny. And, uh, Shulian is more, she's got this blade. It's more like a machete going on. It's a, it's a little bit different. So they, 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 again, they have their differences within them, even though they're still 
the same kind of person. And, and so I, I found that, that kind of interesting so that it actually makes sense when you've got something like this machete type blade that, that you're going to have to get in and like use two hands. And so later on during the big fight, when she is having to use different weapons against Jen, and one of the things she picks up is a very large two-handed sword. And while she's not necessarily used to it, she doesn't have too much of a problem with it because it's not remarkably different from her typical weapon of choice. Right. And one other thing that makes these fight scenes work so well is something that we talked about when we talked about the killer and so close. Mm. Unlike many other action movies, the people uh, who appear in this movie, with the exception of Cheng Pei-Pei. Um, and then Shaoyan, you know, well, Cheng Pei-Pei had been in a lot of martial arts movies, but all of them are pretty much moving around here like they are in a musical rather than um, in a, uh, you know, American-type action movie. Uh, Zhi Zhang actually, I believe, trained as a dancer. And uh, this was her very first action movie. And she and Michelle Yeoh and Xiaoyan Fat move around like dancers. You know, Cheng Pei-Pei, I think, does more traditional martial arts type fighting because that's the type of movie that she was trained on. But all of these fight scenes feel balletic. Yeah, that's the word. Of, yeah, instead of, you know, your typical American fight scene. And that's another reason for me why they work so well here. Yeah, balletic is is exactly the word, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that that's a phrase that like occurred to me while I was watching. It, is just to, like what what this looked like, and it makes sense that everybody is going to move even when they're not in the fight scenes as though they are dancers because they are so deeply ingrained in a way of moving or not. As as um as Mumbai will say from time to time is like sometimes it's not in the movement; it's in the staying still, and it's it's the same sort of thing. It is these people are handling them themselves almost entirely out of muscle memory right now let's talk about the performances here uh cheyenne fat and michelle yale of course were two of the biggest stars of hong kong movies in the 80s and 90s and hong kong action movies in particular even though neither of them may have started out that way and we talked about uh, Shaoyan Fat's uh, career a little bit when we talked about The Killer, and we sort of mentioned Michelle Yeoh's career when we talked about So Close, even though she wasn't in that movie, because we're talking about Asian movies with action heroines in it. Uh, this is the very first movie that they appeared in together, uh, which was quite a big deal. This is also the also a movie where they both had to speak Mandarin, uh, kind of a Chinese dialect that I believe is the dominant language in Taiwan, though I could be wrong. And neither of them, nor uh, the other major actors in the movie, with the exception of Si Hong Long, spoke it fluently. Uh, Yo speaks English and Cantonese 
is fluently, but she had to learn the Mandarin phonetically. And all of the main actors speak Mandarin in their own accent rather than the uh, traditional uh, accent used to speak Mandarin in China, which is one of the reasons why, while the movie was, as I mentioned before, a huge hit in the U.S., both with critics and audiences, it didn't do as well in China because people were so hung up on the fact <laughs> that they didn't speak Mandarin well, which, you know, I will not comment on because I don't speak Mandarin. And although I've seen a handful of Hong Kong and Chinese movies, I certainly wouldn't qualify myself as an expert. But to my untrained ears, it comes out well. And also the fact that Xiao Yun-Fat and Michelle Yeoh may not entirely be comfortable with the language they're speaking sort of fits into the character characters as well, especially in the scenes between the two of them, because, of course, they are playing people who are churning inside with emotion, but for a lot of reasons, aren't able to express themselves, at least verbally. So that didn't, as I said, the Mandarin part didn't really bother me. Now, that's kind of interesting that that it, this film might have had some some issues with being successful in China, if only because you've got Mandarin, you've got Cantonese, you've got several different several different dialects of Chinese. But here's the interesting thing about them is that they all look the same in print. Okay. And and this was something I believe it or not, I learned this in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> because what happened is is they so they, they they make these movies and some of them are going to be in Cantonese and some of them are going to be in Mandarin, some are going to be in whatever else and and <clears throat> and this Chinese restaurant that I used to frequent would have a TV going with Chinese movies on. And I was sitting there waiting for my food one time and watching this movie. And I have no idea what's going on because everybody's speaking Chinese. And at the same time, I'm seeing Chinese subtitles. And so I asked, why are we having, why do we get subtitles on this movie? And it's because, because specifically people from one part of the country can't necessarily understand what people from the other part of the country are saying, but they can read the subtitles and understand exactly what's going on. So that strikes me as interesting. I, I understand if you're going to hear like, you know, Chow Yun-Fat, you know, speaking Mandarin, which he does speak, but he's got this Cantonese accent going on because that's his his, his native language. And similarly, I think Michelle Yeo had a Malaysian accent going on. So yes. I, I understand that side of it that like, okay, she's not speaking it great, but I can understand what she, what she's saying. But the fact is that there are going to be people who don't speak Mandarin as a native language who probably don't really have a problem with it because they don't necessarily understand it enough to recognize that there's an accent. Does that make sense? Well, I can understand that, but I was going to go more along, more along the lines of uh, a prophet without honor in their own country and mm -hmm. all that. So, but anyway, uh, but getting back to the performances in particular, you know, I know we talked about this a little when we talked about uh, In the Mood for Love and the Lost in Translation, that there are people who don't like repressed love stories or people acting subtly. You know, they want they want the big emotions here. 
all I can say to that is watch this movie and I'll see a masterclass of subtlety and what it can do when it's done well. You know, Chalian Fat uh, knows how to move around in action scenes, but he knows how to act with his eyes as mm-hmm. well. Yes. And that's done very well here. And Michelle Yeoh, uh, who thankfully has finally become a big star in this country, unlike most of the other actors in this cast, unfortunately, who were not well used here in America and who understandably have gone back to their native land but she seems after as we talked about when we talked about so close being misused in uh, the james bond movie tomorrow never dies mm-hmm. uh she's been on start uh, the star trek show that you mentioned uh discovery uh, yeah. discovery yeah she was in um a uh, romantic comedy although she was not playing one of the romantic leads crazy rich asian and she was in the action slash sci-fi slash fantasy movie everything everywhere all at once and that was more in tune with her action uh heroine past but even in those movies uh, crazy rich asians and everything everywhere all at once where the movies themselves are pretty over the top, uh, somewhat not to their credit in both cases. In both of those movies, she's showing pretty subtle acting there as well. And it's especially true here. You know, that makes, the for me, the, the last scene between the two of them, when Lu Mubai finally confesses his love to Shu Lin, uh, he says something like, um, I would rather be a ghost drifting by your side as a condemned soul than enter heaven without you. And mm-hmm. she finally starts crying. You know, without those subtleties that happened beforehand, I don't think that last scene between the two of them would have worked so well because that is was really powerful. I remember in the theater watching that and while I didn't cry, yes, my eyes welled up and I could hear a few other people in the audience sniffling <laughs> as well. Yeah, it is, it, it's a genuinely touching scene. And, and as you say, it's, 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 um, it's, it's a great way of, of expressing the, 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 you don't have to necessarily go there. And I, you know, I, I go back and forth on, on whether Mumbai should actually have had said what he said as far as, you know, that, that finally like breaking down and saying, I love you. I mean, I realize like this is, you know, this is his exit and he's not going to get another chance to say it. But at the same time, this could have been a little bit of, you know, almost like, uh, like, like, you know, Han Solo, Princess Leia, I love you, I know, kind of, it's still kind of going unsaid and yet we still understand it. Uh, you know, like Lost in Translation, where you understand that there's that relationship and it's just not going to happen. In this case, it's also not going to happen just for a very, very different reason. Yeah, but I think in this movie, I think it needed to be said. Um, and then on the other side, we have the uh, more passionate relationship between Zhi Zhang and uh, Shang Chen. Now, 
I haven't seen much of Chang Shen's work before or after this. Uh, Ji Zhang, uh, this was only her second major movie. She had been in a movie called The Road Home from acclaimed Chinese director Zhang Yimou. Um, he's responsible for making movies like Raise the Red Lantern. And that was more of a drama. But you would know that she was was untested from watching her in this movie. She's not only convincing in the action scene, she also makes the dramatic scenes work well. Whether she's acting with any of the major stars in this movie, Chen Pepe, who's also very good, Michelle Yeoh, or Chow Yun-Fat, she holds her own throughout the movie. And as a matter of fact, you know, as as much as I like Michelle Yeoh, at the end of the movie and afterwards, all I could talk about <laughs> after seeing it the first time was uh, Zhi Zhang. It's like, this woman is going places. And while, as I said, she didn't have a great career here in the States, she played a villain in Rush Hour 2, and she and Michelle Yeoh uh, reteamed for the completely misguided adaptation of Memoirs of a Geisha, although I don't blame the movie not working on either of them, but she went back to uh, China where she's done movies like a uh, Chinese version of Dangerous Liaisons, where she plays the Michelle Pfeiffer, the character that Michelle Pfeiffer played in the 1988 version, and she played that pretty well. Um, so it's it's nice to see that her career is still going strong, even if it's not in uh, English language movies, because she is that good. Well, she was in Godzilla a couple of years ago, too, which was okay. pretty well received, you know. <laughs> I didn't see that Godzilla, though. Mm. Uh, there are links I will uh, go to see my favorite uh, actors in, but not an English-language Godzilla movie. <laughs> okay, then. Okay, so do you have anything else that you want to mention before we wrap this up well as usual nothing that i don't want to save till the other half okay so stay tuned because in part two we're going to be talking about widows that's coming up immediately in your feed so stick around